0: Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 48-ish. If you're in 49, that's fine. You want to go to 47. We're going to be all over those chapters this morning. This is our penultimate sermon in the book of Genesis, Lord willing. And we're going to be looking at the closing days of Jacob's life. So if you want to open your Bibles, if you use the Red Pew Bible, that's going to put you somewhere around page 48 if you're anywhere in the vicinity of the last few chapters of Genesis, you're in the right place this morning. I'll give you a little more guidance here in a few minutes. In junior high school, I can remember as I closed out my very first time reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy that I was actually depressed that those characters, that, that Gandalf and Frodo and Aragorn, were no longer going to be going to be a part of my life. I was going to miss them. Some years later, when I uh, uh, put down the Sherlock Holmes series, I was sad that Dr. Uh, Watson and and Mr. Holmes were no longer going to be in my everyday existence. I feel that way about Jacob. As we come to Jacob's death, I'm going to miss this guy. And it wasn't always that way. I didn't like Jacob when I first met him. I'm not a big fan of the mama's boy. And how were we introduced to Jacob? Do you recall back in chapter 25, verse 27? It said this When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau, well, yeah, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Favored by his mommy, hanging out in the tents where the women folk hang out, This guy was a mama's boy. But worse than that, more than that, he was a schemer. He's underhanded. He's slippery and slimy. He was a cheater. He was a deceiver. You want something from me? Come and get it. But don't do it in this underhanded, backstabbing sort of way. I did not like Jacob. But here we are, at the close of his life, and I am going to miss him. I have a profound appreciation for how much Jacob has grown and changed, for how God has been at work in this man's life. I've titled this sermon, The Israel of God. It's an expression Paul uses in the book of Galatians to speak of the church. But I borrow it for this sermon, and I apply it to Israel's namesake, Jacob, because I think in the life of this man, Israel, individually, we really do get a picture of what the church, the Israel of God, ought to be. We are, if we are able, to the degree that God in, enables us and empowers us, all of us should aspire to be, individually and corporately, the Israel of God, and toward that end, I want us to look closely at this man's final day. Let's pray. Spirit of God, Jesus once prayed over the twelve, saying to you, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We lift up that prayer today. Sanctify us in the truth. Let us be the true Israel of God. Your word is truth. So reveal to us. What you would have us be, what you would have us believe, what you would have us do. We offer this prayer in the one who gave it first. Amen. Christ reveals God's ideal, God's standard for humanity. Jacob reveals how God gets us there. Jesus is a picture of the sanctified. Israel is a picture of sanctification as a process. If Jesus is the perfect image, Michelangelo's David, if you will, then the life of Jacob is the documentary where the camera is looking over the artist's shoulder. Perhaps we would call it the making of David. It is a glimpse into how God gets us where he wants us, and how we are grown spiritually, and what repentance and faith look like, and what our hope ought to be. Our goal is to be like Jesus, but there's a reason the Bible has more than just the four Gospels. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, Jacob lived the life we actually lived. And in the life of Israel, we get to see the practical, practical cumulative effect of God's work in us, of what a life of walking with God looks like. We need Jesus' life precisely because we couldn't live it, and we need him to do so in our place. But because we cannot live such a life, we also need Israel's life as an illustration of God's methodology, as it were. So we begin this morning, at the end of this section, look, would you, if you would please, to the last verse of chapter 49. Genesis 49, I'm going to begin in verse 33 and read into chapter 50. We're going to begin at the end, and then go back. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak into the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt as well as all the household of Joseph, his brother's, and his father's household. <clears throat> Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there were, uh, sorry, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Adad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the fields of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Egyptian leaders, Egyptian officials, the power brokers of the most powerful nation on the earth, arrayed in all of their wealth, clothed in their finest attire, atop the the best chariots money could buy would have made a profound visual spectacle. All of this Egyptian glory is on display so that they can bury a Hebrew. Do you catch the irony of God in this passage? That the traditional enemies of his people, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, are honoring the namesake of his nation. Israel is being honored, glorified by God. God is using all of the spectacle of Egypt to honor his man. Now, all of these outward markings of Egyptian culture, the funeral possession, uh, possession, uh, the embalming, the period of mourning, the, all of this was done according to Egyptian custom and Egyptian culture. So much so that the Canaanites believe it's an Egyptian funeral. And they scratch their heads, wondering what's going on. And it begs the question, have these Hebrews become, in effect, Egyptians? But remember, in chapter 47, verse 28, which we haven't read, in chapter 47, verse 28, it tells us that they have, at this point, been in the land of Egypt for 17 years. Now, if you do the math, if you remember the the, the details, Pharaoh's dream told them the famine would last seven years. They moved down in the second year of the famine. So that lasts five years, but they've been there 17. That means there have been 12 years the famine has been over, and they haven't gone back to Canaan. Life is pretty good in Egypt. It's pretty comfortable down there. That Nile, that's a pretty reliable source of water, and it produces a pretty steady stream of food. And it ain't bad being the brother of the prime minister and being connected to the halls of power. They have stayed in Egypt. But they could have moved back to Canaan. And Even after the funeral, they could have said, you know what, we got to go back up to the very dad. Let's just go ahead and make the move home. But did you see what verse 14 said? After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. You say, well, he's got a job down there. He's got to return to Egypt. With his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. They are staying in Egypt. And so it does force us to ask the question, with all the Egyptian fanfare, with all the Egyptian customs, with all of the uh, Egyptian honor and their return to Egypt, have the people of God, the people of Israel, become Egyptian? And of course the answer is no. If that were the case, then Israel would not be honored in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. If that were the case, it's hard to imagine God would have bestowed his name upon his people to be Israel. Rather, what we've got going on here is God ordaining the the powers of this world, even the pagan powers, to the glory of himself and his people. Just as the Queen of Sheba would honor Solomon, just as Nahum the Syrian would honor Elisha, just as the Syrophoenician woman would honor Jesus, Just as one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So here we see God bringing the glory, the honor of Egypt, and bestowing it on his man, Israel. He truly is a man whom God wished to set apart and to honor And that ought to cause us to step up and take notice of his life. Why? What is happening in this man? On earth, there is this glory surrounding his funeral. Because in heaven, he is hearing the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Our record of Jacob uh, began, if you'll recall, with him alienating everyone. His father didn't really seem to love him. He was driven away from his mother. Why? Because he made his own brother so angry the guy wanted to murder him. He goes to live with an uncle who just uses him. Everybody seems to be against Jacob. And now here at the end of his life, he's greatly honored. What do we see in his life that we ought to pay attention to? And I would argue that we as the church, as the true Israel of God, we ought to notice three things about his life. Number one, he accepts grace graciously. Number two, he proclaims God's word faithfully. Number three, he makes his decisions based not on his circumstances, but upon God's promises. The people of God, the Israel of God, would do well to be like this man, Israel, graciously accepting grace, faithfully proclaiming God's word, and making choices based on God's promises. Graciously accepting grace. Where do we see that? We started at the end of this long passage to establish that Israel was in fact greatly honored. Let's jump now to the middle, to this passage. Uh, uh, Turn to uh, chapter 48, verse 1. Chapter 48, verse 1. After this, and we don't know yet what this is, we'll get back to it. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Just to be clear. Jacob is adopting Joseph's two oldest boys. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. We are not given the status of Israel's eyesight, so that we can understand his question in verse 8. Who are these? Rather, we're given the status of his eyesight so we can understand what is about to come. His question, who are these? He's already been talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. He knows who they are. So what's going on? This is the formal adoption ceremony. Just as in certain uh, uh, ceremonies, we have uh, certain protocols we follow, certain things we do to dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's, so this is marking the formal adoption just as when we do a baptism, an infant baptism here at the church, what's the last thing I say before the baptism? Father, name your child. It's not because we don't know the baby's name. It's so that we do things in good order, giving to that father the authority that is his, not mine. So Jacob is turning to Joseph with a degree of ceremony and formality. Who are these? They are my sons whom God has given me, and now I give to you. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them for the final time as his legal children. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has shown to me your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. These boys are about 20 years old. They are not sitting on Joseph's lap. The lap is a metaphorical place of the reception of a child. The midwife would take the baby from mom and put it on the lap of the father. Joseph is metaphorically taking them off his lap and putting them into Jacob's lap. The children that were given to him, he's given to his father. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And this is why we were told about Jacob's eyesight, right here. And Israel stretched out his right hand, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." (coughs) When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Literally in Hebrew, it was evil in his eyes. Evil. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, But you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Not this way, my father. Verse 18. How many of us have wanted to say that to God? Not this way, my father. You're doing it wrong, God. Dear Daddy Israel, you're blind. Let me help you out. Ironically, it is Jacob who can see and Joseph who cannot. God's grace is being bestowed upon the younger son, Ephraim. Not because he's the oldest. For then it might be merited. For then it might be required. For then it might be expected. But if something is to be gracious, it cannot be required. It cannot be due or owed. The reversal of the birth order and the bestowal of divine favor on the younger child, has been a theme throughout the book of Genesis. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Rachel over Leah, Joseph over the ten. And that theme is important because it illustrates grace as grace. These people receive it not because something owed them because of their position in the family, but because God chose to be good to them. But there's an accompanying theme in the book of Genesis, and that's this. It's the degree to which God's grace upsets us human beings. Abraham was distraught that God would not use Ishmael. Isaac himself... The beneficiary of God's choosing the younger, he preferred his older son Esau and tried to bless him. And now Joseph, who is yet another beneficiary of God's grace, he's upset that God would do things in an unexpected manner. Why does the grace of God bestowed on others unnerve us? Why does it upset us? Wasn't that actually one of the themes of the famous parable, parable, the prodigal son? Isn't the older brother angry precisely because the father is kind to the younger brother? We act as if God has no right to do things the way he wants to do them. But that's phenomenally ironic, For the oldest child did not choose to be the oldest child. God chooses birth order. God determines what order children will be in. This idea that it's entitled or owed because of that kind of reason misses the whole point. And I think it's part of the reason that God continuously throughout the book of Genesis has preferred the younger son, the younger child, not always sons. In all of the scriptures, I think there is perhaps just one time that we see a character graciously accept God's decision to go in another direction, an unexpected direction. It's when Jonathan accepts the anointing of David. I'm not sure I can think of another illustration. The rule of thumb is that we humans are put out, annoyed, even upset by God doing things the way he does things. He ought to give it to this one because they deserve it. But if it's deserved, it's not grace. Quick illustration of my own struggles on this issue. I recently encountered a woman, met a woman, and for reasons that I won't go into, mostly because they make me look bad, uh, I just assumed this woman couldn't possibly be the recipient of God's grace. About three weeks into my time knowing her, she found out that I was a pastor. And so she wanted to ask me a question. She said, Preacher, I don't know why, I always introduce myself as pastor, they always call me Preacher. Not sure what, is that a southern thing? I don't know what's going on with that. Preacher, I'm against cremation. What do you think? Not sure how to answer, and not wanting to offend her, I followed Jesus' lead and did the Jewish thing. I answered her question with a question. So why are you against cremation? Well, she says, because I worry about whether or not I'll be raised with Jesus at the final resurrection. I was stunned. You could have knocked me over with a feather. And let's be honest, one of the thoughts going through my head, and again, I'm not going to detail why. One of the thoughts going through my head was, why are you worried about it? Because you ain't going to be raised at the resurrection anyway. she gave the response, I should have given. I'm the pastor. I'm the one who's supposed to know about the hope of the resurrection. And here's God's grace in a person that I couldn't imagine being a recipient of God's grace. Why? Because I have this idea that God's got to do things the way I think they should be done. I'm Joseph. Not that way, Father. That's not the one you should bless. Jacob's response is beautiful. I know, my son. I know. He's a man who's lived a long time and has experienced God's grace and has seen the sovereign hand of providence at work and has come to a point where he can accept graciously God's grace. He's not fighting God's decision to bless Ephraim. He's receiving it and accepting it. I once struggled, my son, with God's grace. I was frustrated that he made Esau the older brother to the point that I stole his blessing. But a lifetime of walking with God has taught me to graciously accept God's grace wherever he chooses to bestow it. God's grace to Ephraim doesn't preclude grace for Manasseh. He too will be a great tribe in Israel. But God wants to do even greater things with Ephraim. Is that okay with you, Joseph? Not this way, Father. I know, my son, I know. The Israel of God, the church, must be marked by the kind of gracious acceptance of grace that marked the man Israel. We must learn to welcome those whom God welcomes, not because we like them or because they look like us or because they'll fit in. We are a family put together in the strangest way possible. We don't look like each other. We don't talk like each other. We don't like the same food. We don't have the same customs. But God has united us in Christ Jesus. To those whom he is gracious, we must be gracious and accept that he will do what he wills to do. The Israel of God must graciously accept grace. And the Israel of God must proclaim God's words faithfully. Look at chapter 49. Verse 1 of chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Uh, uh, By the way, biblical first here. This is the first time that we see somebody functioning as a prophet. Until now, God has spoken to certain people, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, but they haven't then taken that word and passed it on to another. Here, God is not merely speaking to Jacob, but he's speaking through Jacob. And we have the beginnings of prophecy. Verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. We are not, uh, we are not going to be reading all of these pronouncements Many of them contain symbolism that's just lost to history. We don't know what it means anymore. Maybe one day God will allow archaeologists to discover a text that will give us insight into what these symbols mean, but right now most of them are a mystery to us. Of the 12 pronouncements of the 12 tribes, there are a couple that I want us to look at because they illustrate our lesson. So verses 3 through 7, really kind of anti-blessings, bestowed on the three oldest sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Again, without going into the detail, just ponder that for a moment. Israel is on his deathbed and he pronounces anti blessings on his three oldest sons. Isn't everything okay when somebody's on their deathbed? Isn't the deathbed where everything is just put behind you and forgotten? Everything is forgiven. I didn't really mean it. No, no, neither did I. I'm so sorry. So am I. Hugs and kisses. Not so here. Jacob is willing to say what God says. He doesn't paint it over, he doesn't try to make nice with it, he doesn't squirrel it away because it might be offensive. This is the word God has given him, and he is going to give this word. The Israel of God, the church, must faithfully say what God says. Like it or not, easy or hard. And to be sure, a lot of the time that's wonderful. It's good news. In love, God sent a Redeemer to save us. It's a wonderful thing to preach. But sometimes the news isn't so happy or isn't what we necessarily want to hear. Sometimes God's word to us is, stop sinning. Quit doing that. Do this. And there are times we don't want to hear that. And sometimes we'll say things to the preacher like, you know, we just need to see Jesus, preacher can't believe how many pulpits I have stood behind over the years that have that plaque on them. We would see Jesus. I think sometimes that's just a pious way of saying, I don't want the Holy Spirit to convict me of sin today. The true Israel of God must proclaim the word of God even when it is difficult. But wait, it gets even more difficult Let's keep going. Let's turn our attention now to the blessing upon Judah, beginning in verse 8. Remember, Judah's the one who accidentally fathered a child with his daughter-in-law because he thought he was sleeping with a prostitute. I I don't care how many times I say that. I'm still like, ah! But even more than that, Judah's the one who sold the beloved Joseph into slavery. If there is a son upon whom Jacob is going to pronounce curses, this would be the one. Look at verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. What? Reuben sleeps with the wrong woman and he's cursed. Judah sleeps with the wrong woman and he's to be praised? Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. It was a hard enough that we had to bow to Joseph, but at least he saved us. What has Judah done for us that we should bow to him? Judah's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stoops down. He crouches as lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. King language nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Is Judah really going to be the tribe, the clan, that brings forth royalty in Israel? Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. This imagery at the end is basically this. The tribe of Judah is going to be so wealthy, so economically well-off, that they can let their donkeys munch on grapes. And the wine is going to flow so freely that when they go to press it in the wine vats, it splashes all over them, and their garments are washed in the blood of grapes. This is a picture of Judah being a tribe of royalty, of Judah being a tribe of wealth. The blessing of Israel, ah uh, ah uh, 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 To Joseph's tribes, later on in the passage that we're not going to look at, speaks of strength, it speaks of victory in battle, it speaks of uh, 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 prosperity in their numbers, but it's not to Joseph's tribe that Jacob pronounces the hope of a king. Despite Judah's personal preference for Joseph, he is faithful to God's word and promises a king through Judah. And to be sure, that dynasty, that kingdom that would raise up the, the 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 line of David and the successors to him, there'd be many great kings. By ancient Midi standards, it was a pretty long dynasty. It lasted five times longer than a typical Egyptian dynasty. By earthly standards, it was pretty successful. But then the revelation of God comes and says, Oh, by the way, your Messiah is going to be royal. Your Messiah is going to be king. He's going to be the son of David, the greater David. In other words, he's going to descend from Judah also. So this man Judah gets to be the progenitor, humanly speaking, of the Christ. Jacob was faithful in proclaiming God's unpleasant words to his oldest sons. And that would be tough to do on one's deathbed. But perhaps even tougher than that is the proclamation of glory and honor for the scandalized traitor Judah, rather than the beloved Joseph. Israel declares God's word as God gave it to him, not as he would have preferred it to be, not as he might have wanted it to be. The true Israel of God, the Church, must always do that. Nothing more and nothing less. In his death, God honored Israel above all the other patriarchs. Why? Because of the qualities that were cultivated within this man. He was marked by a gracious acceptance of grace, at least eventually, willing to accept that God will choose whichever child, whichever person he wants to choose. He is uh, uh, willing to faithfully proclaim the word of God, no matter how difficult it might be. Be. And finally, the true Israel of God makes decisions based on God's future promises. We began at the end, we moved to the middle, now back to the beginning, chapter 47 verse 27. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Putting one's hand under one's thigh is akin to putting your hand on the Bible in court. It's a solemn pledge to tell the truth. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed, <clears throat> bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Israel had that conversation in private with Joseph. Later he has one with all of the sons. Go down to chapter 49, verse 29. Chapter 49, verse 29. I told you we would jump it all over this section. Then he, Jacob, Israel commanded them, that is, all twelve sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. We begin with Israel's funeral. And here we end with his preparations for that funeral. His final plans. One of the saddest things I do as a pastor is listen to the preparations that some people make for funerals. I'm sorry for your loss. How do you want to begin preparing for his funeral? Oh, what's in the funeral doesn't matter. All that matters is that he's buried in his Yankee jersey. He loved the Yankees. He was a huge fan all his life of the Yankees. Seriously? That's what he wants to be known for. That's what's important in his life, basically. Pastor, it doesn't matter what we do for the service for mom. Her thing was cooking. She loved to feed the family. What really matters is that we get the luncheon afterwards right. It is a sad thing. When those who are outwardly the people of God want to be remembered for everything but their hope in God. The hope of the Lord did not take a back seat for Israel. Israel did not want his death to be noted for its meal, nor did he care if he rested in the jersey of his favorite team. When it came to his future after death, His only concern is that he would be resting upon the promise of God. I know all my children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren are here in Egypt. But that's not God's future. It may be our present circumstances, but they're not going to control my decision-making. They're not going to determine what I base my life on. God has promised us Canaan. And I want to be in his promises. I already told you about the woman wondering if cremation would preclude resurrection. And I understand, I understand that God can put a body back together regardless of what has happened to it. But that's really not the point. The point is that she had her eye on the resurrection. She was making choices in the here and now based on her best understanding of of what was coming in God's future. Not the prevailing uh, views of society and the culture around us, but what God said, the future held. Israel is making choices based on God's future promises rather than his present circumstances. God promised that land to us. Joseph, I love you and I know you're here in Egypt, but i got to be where God said we were going to be. Judah, you got off to a rough start, but you've turned things around. I love you. I'd love to be next to you here in Egypt. But I've got to be where God said to be. Do we make decisions based not on the circumstances of the moment, but upon God's future promises? And not just decisions about our funerals, but decisions about every aspect of our lives. Do we direct our money in accord with God's promises rather than our circumstances? Do we spend our time on God's promises rather than worrying about our circumstances? Israel's life in the end was marked by things that ought to mark us as well. You see, the Israel of God, the church, needs to, like Israel the man, Accept God's grace graciously, proclaim his word faithfully, and make decisions that are grounded on his promised future. Let's pray. Lord, you honored Jacob in this, on this earth. At the close of his life, you bestowed great glory upon him in this funeral. And you did so so that we would take notice, so that we would recognize that you were tapping him as a model, as an exemplar, as one that we ought to look to. Not because he was perfect, that resides only in Jesus, but because he was being made perfect. He was being sanctified by you reformed into the image that he was once created to be. Let us learn these lessons. Let us pray for these things. Let us desire to be like Israel the man. So that individually and collectively we will be the true Israel of God. The church which you have called out from the world to be set apart for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.